0: All right, let's, uh, let's begin with a word of prayer. Lord God, Heavenly Father, we pray that you will bless our time together as we study your word, enrich our hearts, and give us eyes of faith which look to you for every good thing. We pray this in your most holy name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so I don't know if this is cause for celebration or not, but we're on the last parable. <laughs> okay, maybe it is. I don't know. <laughs> I think that the idea will be then to go back... To earlier chapters, like on the Lord's Prayer, yet yeah, to review, to go to go study the Lord's Prayer in Bailey, uh, but this is the last parable, and um, uh, it's a familiar one. So maybe uh, why don't we do this? Why don't we just start by reading the parable? I don't think that Bailey had uh, a ton of new observations to make, like he has in the past. He hasn't. Well, there weren't a lot of very cultural notes to make, so we might take, we might get through it pretty quickly. But I've got some other things that we can. Chat about as well. Let's um, let's start by reading the parable, Luke chapter twenty. So everybody have a copy of the sheet of paper. Did you get one there? Okay. Luke chapter twenty, verses nine through eighteen. And is there a volunteer who would care to read that? Mary.
1: and went into a far country for a long time. Now at vintage time he sent a servant to the vine dressers that they might give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the vine dressers beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again he sent another servant, and they beat him also, treated him shamefully, and sent him away empty-handed. And again he sent a third. And they wounded him also and cast him out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Probably they will respect him when they see him. But when the vine dressers saw him, they reasoned among themselves, saying, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, that the inheritance may be ours. So they cast him out of the vineyard and yard to others, and when they heard it, it they said, certainly not. Then he looked at them and said, What then is this that is written? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Whoever falls on that stone will be broken, but on whom it falls, it will grind him to powder.
0: All right. Thank you, Mary. So this is a um, this is a parable which shows up in all three synoptic gospels Matthew Mark and Luke. Um, it, it's a little bit different in others uh, the, in the other gospels. I can't remember which whether it's in Matthew or Mark that the, uh, the vine dressers the tenants actually kill one of the other servants. Um, but the the plot is pretty straightforward, right? Um, the guy. Has a, fee, uh, a vineyard. He leases it out, and when it's time for the fruit to come, he expects to receive some. And they, the, the, the tenants are not respectful. They don't, they don't, they don't send any of the fruit, and they mistreat, they shame his servants. So, um, if you can summarize it in in few words, what's the point of the parable? What do we get out of it, Nancy?
1: Right. The point would be that the owner sent his son instead of retaliating.
0: Okay. But of course, as a Westerner, right. The
1: the point is that the vineyard is going to be given
0: to others. Sure. Yeah. If so, if you read it sort of in a linear way, you get to the end of the parable and you say, "Okay, this is the summary here. He will destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. That's the that's the sort of high point." Well, as 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 Nancy said, Bailey points out, there's there's this. This ring structure, so the beginning and the end correspond, and then you get you the you know the second part and the second to last part correspond, and you get to the middle and that 's the climax and the climax is the the uh the owner's decision not to pursue justice, not to call in the authorities and you know run these terrible tenants out but to send his son instead um and that's i mean it's the 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 applications to you know our own salvation, are pretty pretty straightforward. Um, we see that, especially when we, when, we, uh, when we hear the passion story, right? They've killed the prophets, um, the ones that have been sent before, and now God is, in, spi- in spite of that, sending his son, and they kill him nevertheless. Mary. I have a question. During this time in that society, didn't they have consequences for killing
1: somebody? Yeah. I think if they did. The Romans weren't right there and saw it. It's not like what we have. The person is arrested, then he comes to trial, and then and then he's either found guilty or
0: innocent. Right. It sounds from Bailey's description, it sounds like the it, the burden uh for prosecuting would have would have fallen to the owner. So it would have been his decision. So they, they mistreated his servants. If he wanted to pursue justice, he could, but there wasn't it wasn't like United States, where you get you know there, there, there's a public prosecutor and and you get you get a defender regardless of whether you can afford a lawyer or not you know it wasn't quite like that sure or not. right then, uh, yeah, I think that that question um, court relates also to a question about the fact that the tenants presume that they're going to Inherit the, the the vineyard if they kill the vine dresser, the owner's son, right? What's with that? That's right. I mean, so, so yeah, so yeah, you're welcome. So Bailey, you know what's what's Bailey's explanation? How how do they think they can get away with that? Squatters', Squatter's rights. Yeah. So they if they inhabit the place for three years and nobody comes to claim it, then they get it. I mean, regardless, evidently of anything they've done, you know, in in the past. Um, what I, you know, what is still obvious though is that the owner is still around. They haven't killed the owner, right? So, is he going to just let them sit there for three years? Well, maybe. I mean, maybe they figure if um, if they if they figure if they killed the son, the owner will stay away because he'll be afraid, right? Um, but he has justice on his side, so. They, I think they probably are smoking something. Uh, the, I mean, the, the, and that's what—that's—it's an apt description. These guys are these guys are stupid, right? They have—they um, have everything going for them. All they have to do is give up some f- some of the fruit of the vineyard, and when they don't do it, when they when they screw up royally, um, the the owner of the vineyard is merciful. He gives them another shot, and they they reject it outright. Any other questions, thoughts? Anything else? In, no, go ahead, Carol. Um, what that me
1: was the very beginning of this, and again, oh, yeah, this is right after the cleansing of the temple. Right. But as Bailey described it, I didn't realize it was such a big deal. Yeah.
0: Right, and and you know we tend to think we tend to look at the cleansing of the temple and assume that Jesus was was stopping some activity, you know, the money changers and the the people who were selling animals, stopping some illicit activity. They shouldn't have been there in the first place. But this was publicly sanctioned. You know, they needed to sell animals; otherwise, there wouldn't be anything for the sacrifice. They needed to change money because otherwise, visitors from outside of Jerusalem couldn't buy animals for the sacrifice. So this was a well-established. Functional, practical thing, and Jesus comes and just puts things to a halt. And what's the point of that? What, Bailey, Bailey mentions it. What is what is Jesus communicating by bringing things to a halt? Well, there was an sacrifice. Okay. Yeah. That's very true. Exactly. Yep yeah if you read if you read um, the Gospel of Luke thinking about the the role of the temple in the story you, it becomes pretty clear that Jesus starts to communicate that he is he is the new temple um, he and this is, this is true in John as well um, we We talked about the Feast of booths in the adult Bible study on Sunday morning a while ago, and there's a great example so um, you know the pilgrimage to the temple in Jerusalem was the big deal, and now Jesus stands up and says, well here I am, you know. Come, come to me, if you're thirsty. Come to me for light, right? Yeah, um, and so, I mean, anybody who had their and this is this is another point Bailey makes. Anybody who had their eyes open or who was sort of listening carefully to what Jesus was saying would see that he's making some pretty big claims, and especially when he quotes Psalm 118. So this was this was the pilgrim psalm, which had been sung as they they uh, during the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. It was the, the psalm which, um, you know, marked the, the the procession to the temple. And Jesus is here saying that he is the cornerstone that's been rejected. And it, Bailey, you may, may, I don't know if you noticed this, Bailey pointed out this interesting um, linguistic thing. So there's a, a play on words that happens at the end of the parable. So the Hebrew word for son is ben, we, you know, Benjamin, um, so that's the Hebrew word for sun, and the Hebrew word for stone is ebon. Um, and so, and this this happens frequently. These these guys were clever. When when you know, and, and in, with Hebrew, it's really easy, oftentimes, to make these kinds of plays on words because there are very few words in the Hebrew language, and they a lot of them sound the same. So if you're if, if you're clever with it, you can make this draw this association. So the sun was sent to the people, and now the stone is the one that's been rejected, and Jesus is pointing at himself all the while, showing that, that he's he's the guy. Anything else from Bailey that caught your attention? Nancy. I like the yeah, let's talk about that for a minute. What what was the st- Can you just quickly summarize the story?
1: Apparently some of his military guys were planning a coup and he found out about it and um, there was the option of going in there with, the army, or whatever. But he thought about it, and he instead went alone to where they were having this meeting and presented himself and said, "Rather than just killing masses of people, or you know, risking the lives of a lot of innocent people, if you really want to do this, just kill me now." Right. And they were ashamed of it.
0: Yeah. I guess. Yeah, mean, it's a great, it's a great story. And and Bailey says he he um, verified it. He talked to intelligence people who knew that this actually happened. Um, so it so it's. It's really helpful illustration for. Uh, so this is w- one thing I think we should talk about very carefully. Um, king Hussein put himself in this position where he was vulnerable, and that's the Bailey uses the word vulnerable over and over again. So the son, the king, or the owner of the vineyard, um, made himself vul- vulnerable by give, by sending his son. King Hussein did the same thing. He put himself in a position where he could have been killed, and he was hoping that it would evoke some sort of a. That it would, that it would um, you know, call to bring to light the last bits of honor that these military men had. And it did. It worked. They, they sort of recanted. They went to him and they kissed his feet and they said, you know, we're loyal to you. So the question is, what's different between what King Hussein did and what the owner of the vineyard did? Is it a direct analogy? Is it, is it a direct comparison? okay right and and that's you know that's interesting because um i think that especially nowadays i mean, it's hard, a little bit harder for us to see the identity between sending your son and and going yourself but i think that that's what's that's really what's being communicated by sending his son the owner was was himself going a, you know a part of himself was going which i think is important to note um it wasn't. It wasn't like he was sending a representative. He was, you know, the 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 servants were representatives. Now he's now he's investing himself in it, right? Jan. Yeah, yeah. It's like Isaiah says um, in the end of Isaiah. We heard this on uh, sometime over the weekend. He says, um, "Behold, I am doing a new thing." And that's—I mean—that's a great description of what Jesus comes to do. Not that—not that God has changed his behavior, but now he's here doing what he said he would do, saving people. Um, good. So, so but but uh, think about King Hussein again. I think that there's there are some. It's it's. Uh, I think it's important to. Uh, note a difference between what King Hussein did and what the owner does with his son, sending his son. Because um, King Hussein is not, he's not capable of being as as generous, as merciful as God is, right? So what's the difference? I think it, was, it wasn't entirely altruistic in that he was counting on them Yeah, good, absolutely, yeah. So he was, I mean... Even if he put on a good face, a little bit of him was hoping that they wouldn't kill him, right? Even though he put himself out there to be killed. He put himself in the position of being vulnerable, but his heart probably wasn't in it 100%. Right? Now, we, in the story, in the parable, the owner says, um, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. So, we get the sense from the parable that the owner is hoping that they'll respect him. But what does he know about these guys? They're not going to, right? Yeah, right. Yeah. So he he is putting himself in a position where he knows they're not going to um, they're not going to be shamed. They're not going to come back to him um, and receive his you know receive his forgiveness. And that that I think is the big difference. Um, so we can be vul- We can we can put ourselves in situations where we're vulnerable. Um, but we have a. It would be impossible. I mean, it's impossible for us to put ourselves in a situation where we, where, you know, the risk is certain. You know, where where we know that the outcome is is not going to fall in our favor. Um, and that's where that's the big difference between God and us. God puts himself completely out there for our sakes. Um, does that make sense? I think I think that that's you know that's really what's highlighted here. And if we. Uh, I mean, Bailey points out that, that the, the owner has no, has, has no reason to believe that these people will, will change their mind. Okay, what else? Anything else from Bailey? I, th- I think the story f- about King Hussein was really helpful um, for illustrating the point. Okay. So, now... Take a look at that sheet of paper there. I have some questions for you. A lot of questions about vulnerability. This, I was thinking about this quite a bit. I, I don't know if, if you um, are familiar with TED Talks. It's this um, organization. I think TED stands for Technology, Education, and Design. And it's, this, it's been going on for a while. All over the world, they have these gatherings, conferences, where they invite speakers to come and give presentations about um, Technology, education, and design, and oftentimes they're really, really insightful, and they bring really brilliant people. If you look up, te- if you go to TED.com, you can see some of the interesting stuff they have. Anyways, there was a woman who gave a talk a while ago about vulnerability. She was a, she's a, a, a therapist who did who did graduate work um, studying the relationship between vulnerability and a sense of self-worth, and um, and. The, the relationship between that and feeling connected. Um, and so her. I'll give you a quick summary here. Her assertion is that just as people, as humans, in order for us to feel connected to one another, we have to be willing to be vulnerable. Um, vulnerability is something which is inherently human. She says we, um, we can't avoid it, although we try as hard as we can. And so living wholeheartedly, is the way she puts it, living wholeheartedly involves coming to terms with the fact that it's okay to be vulnerable. It's okay, and, and vulnerability is not weakness. And it's okay to take the risk of it being put to shame. So she has this great discussion about vulnerability. And I think it's really helpful, though, to, um, to compare that with both the vulnerability that God displays in sending his son and also what kind of vulnerability we ought to exhibit as Christians. Is it different than just normal human vulnerability? So let's, we'll get there. Um, but let's start with the first couple questions there. So these ones should be pretty straightforward. What is vulnerability? If you if you if you have to define it, what is it? Mary. Yeah. That's and I think. Right, and I think that we, you set something, uh, you set a distinction, an important distinction at play here, which is the difference between, when it comes to truth, um, vulnerability versus gullibility, right? Yes. So, and there's an important thing there, and it has to do with the way we develop relationships. So, um, you're not truly vulnerable if you, if you just believe everybody, believe everything everybody says, but you are vulnerable if you believe the things that people say who are, who, with whom you have relationships with whom you've established trust, but nevertheless, who could betray you? Who could tell you a lie? Right. All right. Great. Thank you. Yeah. Any anything else? Any other ways to define vulnerability? Giving up control. Okay. Yeah. Making L- yourself available to whatever outcome. May sure. Yeah. Yep. And letting and, and letting somebody else in particular have control too. Yeah. So, I mean, a marriage is a great example of, of a situation where you enter into vulnerability, right? What else? Anne. Yeah. And it could be to any kind of risk, right? Yeah. 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 Good. Okay. So now the next question, just to make it m- more concrete, what, when are we or when are you most vulnerable It's a tough question, I know. So, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, good. Closing your eyes at night, I think, is a a remark. Yeah. I think that's a great... It's a great example. It it, it, it illustrates the fact that, as humans, we we can't avoid vulnerability. We all have to sleep. Um, And I, you know... I often think about how, how much harder it must be to sleep if you're not, if you don't have, like, if you can't say the prayer. If I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. Right? If you can't say that prayer, how much harder it must be to sleep at night? You know, mm-hmm. it, um, and it's, sometimes it's hard to sleep. Right? So yeah, I think about that. I think this is a great example. Any, anything else? Yeah. I would go back to Rachel's comment that it's, um, when you give up control. Yeah. Or turn over to Mhm. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So, yeah, like I think about with like with our children, you know, um, in some sense that we become vulnerable when we I mean, when we hand them the keys to the car for one thing, you know, but like <laughs> but when you when like they, when they start doing things independently, um, you become vulnerable, right? You are at risk for at risk for loss. You know. Um, having children. Be <laughs> that, exactly. Love That's right. Yeah. You you're yep. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. But, I mean, so having having relationships at all is 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 vulnerability, and when when those relationships are an extension of your your own life, then you're even more vulnerable, right? yeah they are very vulnerable. Sure mm-hmm. yeah yep, right yep mm-hmm they and, and that's the remarkable thing. they go hand in hand, so trust um, trust is obviously essential to human relationships. We can't um, you know a society in which lying would be is, is, a, is acceptable is normative. Um, there can be no human relationships. If you never know whether somebody's telling you the truth, it, it just doesn't work. Right? That's why That's why every culture telling the truth is a virtue. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a rule. It's a hard and fast rule. Um, and so, trust, you know, though, requires this vulnerability. And so, uh, it's amazing that such a high virtue um, requires us to be at our perhaps most humble. Right? To be the most available to to injury. Okay, so the time is flying. I want to play for you a few minutes of um, what this woman, her name is Brene Brown, what she had to say. So this, um, on the radio, on NPR, they do uh, every couple of weeks a TED radio hour where they sort of curate a bunch of TED talks. And this one was about risk-taking. And so they interviewed the woman and played part of her talk. I'll just play a a few minutes of it. And the thing to think about is, now we have to bring this home, What's the difference between the the kind of vulnerability that we're talking about here which is just sort of human, I mean inherently human and important for relationships. What's the difference between that and God's vulnerability and our vulnerability as Christians? So, it's just just sound. I'm going to put my microphone here. And it's I'm we're jumping right into the m- middle of it here, so it, hang tight.
2: And I'm always
1: thinking, you know, right on Brene studies vulnerability and how it affects almost all of our thoughts and decisions and really our lives. And she gave a TEDx talk in Houston all about it. And uh, and what happened?
2: (laughs) Oh,
1: I don't know what happened. Um, What happened was that even by TED standards, this thing was huge, more than 8 million views. That's why people come up to her in the street. And what made Brene's talk different? Well, Brene's a numbers person, but wrapped up in that data is a very personal story. A story about how she learned to embrace vulnerability. I felt like for the first time
2: really in my career, this total freedom to try something new. And I thought about it and I thought about, well, why don't I just try something really scary? And i Let me, you know, I'll be vulnerable while I'm talking about vulnerability. And so I want to talk to you and tell some stories about a piece of my research that fundamentally expanded my perception um, and really actually changed the way that I live and love and work and parent. So very quickly, really about six weeks into this research, I ran into this unnamed thing that absolutely unraveled connection in a way that I didn't understand or had never seen. And so I pulled back out of the research and thought, I need to figure out what this is. And it turned out to be shame. And shame is really easily understood as the fear of disconnection. Is there something about me that if other people know it or see it, that I won't be worthy of connection? The things I can tell you about it, it's universal. We all have it. The only people who don't experience shame have no capacity for human empathy or connection no one wants to talk about it, and the less you talk about it, the more you have it. What underpinned this shame, this I'm not good enough, which we all know that feeling, I'm not blank enough, I'm not thin enough, rich enough, beautiful enough, smart enough, promoted enough. Um, The thing that underpinned this was excruciating vulnerability. This idea of in order for connection to happen, we have to allow ourselves to be seen, really seen. And you know how there are people that, like, when they realize that vulnerability and tenderness are important, that they kind of surrender and walk into it? A, that's not me. And B, I don't even hang out with people like that. Uh, For me, it was a year-long street fight. It was a slugfest. Vulnerability pushed, I pushed back. I lost um, the fight, but probably won my life back. And so then I went back into the research and spent the next couple of years really trying to understand what they, the wholehearted, um, what the choices they were making, and and what what are we doing with vulnerability? Why do we struggle with it so much? Am I alone in struggling with vulnerability? No. So this is what I learned. We numb vulnerability. Having to ask my husband for help because I'm sick and we're newly married being turned down, asking someone out, waiting for the doctor to call back, getting laid off, laying off people. This is the world we live in. And one of the ways we deal with it is we numb vulnerability. You cannot selectively numb. So when we numb those, we numb joy. We numb gratitude.
1: We numb happiness. So Brene kept researching vulnerability, and two years later, she was back on the TED stage.
2: There's two things that I've learned in the last year. Um, The first is vulnerability is not weakness. And that myth is profoundly dangerous. And I've come to the belief, this is my 12th year doing this research, that vulnerability is our most accurate measurement of courage. How? How? this came up a lot when we asked people what's something from an example from their lives that they would use to describe vulnerability and a lot of people said vulnerability is picking up the phone and calling someone who's just been through something tragic or traumatic and you know we all kind of do the same thing we look at the phone and we think oh my god I've got to call her I can't believe her husband had a heart attack and died I've got to call and we kind of circle the phone and we think "Uh, I don't know maybe I'll call later because you know what am I going to say and so I think When we finally call, and the hard thing about that call is we know that there's nothing we can say to make things better. All we can do is say, I'm with you in this. I'm hurting for you. You're not alone. When we pick up the phone and make that call, and we hang up and we walk away from the phone, we feel courageous. We feel like we've had the courage to live in integrity. We're aligned with our values. So let me ask you this question. Have you ever had put you on the spot Um, have you ever had that situation where you really needed to make that call but you didn't yes yes me too I have too. and then what is that feeling that you have when you run into that person at the grocery store a month later shame
1: yeah total shame yeah you avoid you want to avoid them you can't look in their eyes you do
2: so then you've got a person who's in grief probably feeling really alone and isolated and you're hiding behind the potato chip aisle I think vulnerability is courage. I think it's about coming through in times of deep uncertainty and a deep fear and emotional risk. I think that's I think that's brave. I think it's brave to show up. Is it necessary? Do you have to yes. do it? Yeah, because here's the thing. If vulnerability is indeed uncertainty risk and emotional exposure, then to be human is to be vulnerable. To be in relationship is to be vulnerable. To be, you know, professionally engaged at work is to be vulnerable we're up against uncertainty risk and emotional exposure every day all day and so i think the myth that the dangerous myth is that we can say oh that's a neat topic that i heard them talking about on the radio but you know i don't really do vulnerability no you do it every single day you know one of the things i've said before is you know live tweeting your bikini wax is not vulnerability (laughs) Sharing the intimate details of your child's emotional response to your divorce on Facebook is not vulnerability.
1: That's too much information.
2: Definitely. It's one of the big four myths of vulnerability, that vulnerability is letting it all hang out. Right. Embedded in real vulnerability is an honest, raw bid for connection. And if I get really shamed by a colleague in front of clients at work or something, and I come home and I put on Facebook, man got totally shamed at work by so-and-so and and feel small and stupid, I might get 20 comments from other people that say, I hate when that happens, it's happened to me, you're not alone, brother, you know, that kind of thing. And that's normalizing. But nowhere in that is there a raw bid for connection. If I called you after work and said, hey, guys, it's Brene, and do you have a minute because I just went into this total shame spiral at work and I'm just feeling just... I'm devastated. That's a very vulnerable bit because I'm saying, do you have time and do you care enough to spend a few minutes talking to me about something that's hard? And so, in my view, vulnerability is about intimacy, trust, and connection. We share our stories with people who've earned the right to hear them.
0: Okay. Yeah, well, it's something else, I think, if you do it on Facebook. <laughs> I don't know what it is, though. What <laughs> what do you th- what, So what do you think about that? It, yeah? Is, it, is what she has to say helpful, you think? Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. How How so? Can you, I you put it on Facebook. <laughs> because honestly, I
1: think people are living their lives on that, thinking they're being social
0: and they're... Sure. They're Absolutely, yeah. No real connection. Right, right.
1: That's good. Yeah. This reminds me of Psalm fifty one, um, a broken I don't know why I keep thinking of this. Um, my sacrifice is a broken and contrite
0: heart. Right. Yep. You know, you have to
1: almost be broken to heal to be
0: healed. Sure. To be full. Yeah. If you spend all your time pretending that you're not broken, mm-hmm. then you don't then you can't heal, right? Good. Jan. Well, I'm I'm sitting here thinking back to when my kids were teenagers we and they're in their mid forties now. So he learned how to bite. <laughs> <laughs> That's <laughs> good. And Jan only broke down on the night that the thunderstorm <laughs> <laughs>
1: to yep. not let them learn the lesson and to not be vulnerable and be courageous enough in yeah. that situation to make him face up to the fact that, you know what? Writing is not
0: a right. It is a privilege sure. and you lost it. Good. That's great. Uh, <laughs> Brene Brown even talk, it talks about that in another place as well, that we, we sort of we impose our, our unwillingness to be vulnerable on our children. We and we true yeah you survived <laughs> very good <laughs> yeah, good <laughs> good uh, okay, so now um, i mean there's a lot there 's a lot to talk about just from that little clip. so if you want to hear the rest of or hear more of her talking I, I'd encourage you to she 's very interesting and very helpful. If you go to ted.com and search for vulnerability, you'll get one talk by her, and then another one about shame a couple of years later. Um, and there's stuff on the web, uh, more information as well. I, I think, though, the important, an important question though is what what's the difference between that and and being a Christian, being vulnerable as a Christian. Any ideas? It's a tough question. That, see, that's the way that we're
1: able to help each other get through life. Yeah. If, if, we're, if we're snobbish and we don't fess up to our weaknesses or our life examples, what we've gone through, how are we going to help somebody else?
0: Sure. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, so really, these observations about vulnerability as, as, as essential to being humans, um, are, it's, it's, it underpins everything we have to say about love. So... Um, we don't understand what love is unless we understand what it is to trust and to to be vulnerable. We got this great quotation by C.S. Lewis um, from the Four Loves. I, I'll let you read it uh, on your own, um, but it's uh, you know it's, it hits the nail on the head. So and and we're called as Christians to love God and to love our neighbors. And I think that uh, one thing which, um, which you know, sort of a secular di- discussion of vulnerability can Fringe on, but never really hit, is the idea of, of confession and forgiveness. Of, you know, of admitting your faults and being willing to receive forgiveness from somebody. So, we come before God um, precisely the way that he sent his son um, in, in complete vulnerability. Having, having no hope left, right? So, that's what, uh, what Psalm 51 is all about, right? It's about being at the very bottom of the pit. Being, being as low as we can be. And, um, and that's, where, that's where faith is a gift of the Holy Spirit. Because at that point, you have no hope in yourself. You are at your most vulnerable. And that's, where, that's how we stand before God and He forgives us. So then, you know, as Christians, we are called to imitate that behavior, you know, among each other. Both in confessing our sins, being, being humble, and in being willing to, for, and being willing to forgive. Um, and, and the great thing about the way we understand forgiveness is that our forgiveness is God's forgiveness. So um, it means something. It's not just a sentiment. It, it actually affects what it says. It does it. It forgives. It takes, takes away the fault. And, um, and so, it, this is a, so I think it's a great example of how um, there's so much truth in, what, in, in, in simple observations about human life. There's so much truth we can glean and... Um, uh, and we benefit from that, but we need we need the gospel as well to you know to to finish to seal the deal for us right Does that make sense okay Donna right yep great yeah so so if you if you listen to more of what she says, think about it in those terms because um and this is true for so much of, of so much of uh, what's brilliant in the world is that they get they get so close. They get so close and what's missing is what's missing is the gospel. The, you know, the fact that we can't we can't we see what we need to do but we can't do it on our own, right? Yeah, I was
1: wondering when Mama said that. I mean, it's like I think about doing all that stuff without like the safety net of faith. Yeah. Like, how does it how do others like, do it? Right. You know? Yep. And all those feelings of shame and vulnerability. Yeah. Because if you don't have the faith to back it up, how much harder would that
0: be? Yeah. Yeah. We better, we better call it quits here. The kids are calling. So, <laughs> let's pray. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, <laughs> thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread.